So I know we're all tired of presidential politics. The ads, the phone calls and texts, the toxicity, the audible strain of our democratic institutions being tested like never before. And with the 2020 election this week, get ready for a fever pitch and a fight to the finish and all the other overhyped cliches that accompany this wonderful, exhausting pageantry that we call democracy. I get it. While there are countless lessons that we could analyze from the past year's campaigns, nobody's in the mood for that right now. We need a fond memory. We need a reason to smile again. We need Michael Dukakis in a tank. All five feet eight of him, put him in a gray jumpsuit, put a helmet on top of him labeled Mike Dukakis on the front. The National Press Corps and everyone on the press riser bends over guffawing. What a ridiculous stunt that this was. It's the most notoriously disastrous photo op in history, blamed in part for squandering Dukakis' 17-point lead in the 1988 presidential election against future President George H.W. Bush. And in the spirit of election week, we'll explore what led up to the catastrophe and its lasting impact on the world of public relations and marketing with one Democrat and one Republican, both of whom have worked in the White House. Josh King was a junior staffer on the campaign trail for Team Dukakis 88. He went on to serve as White House events director under Democratic President Bill Clinton. And Kevin Sullivan was the White House spokesman under the 43rd president, Republican George W. Bush. Together, they'll shed new light on the political legend of Dukakis in a tank, offer up a glimpse behind the scenes of the Clinton and Bush administrations, and remind us of a few other times when the Republic teetered on the brink of PR calamity. I'm Dusty Weiss from PodCamp Media. This is Lead Balloon, a podcast about PR, marketing, and branding disasters and the well-meaning communications professionals who live them. If you are one of those people who can't be bothered to vote, go soak your head. Everyone else who voted or will vote, thanks for tuning in. Election Day has always felt like a holiday to me. And this year, it's a little bit different. With the pandemic, with the high stakes, with a lot of uncertainty about our democratic institutions, voting feels more like a mission this year. So here's hoping we can get back to celebrating our democracy again. But speaking of celebrations, we recently got some pretty great news here at PodCamp Media. Industry-leading publication Adweek has named this show its Marketing Podcast of the Year, and I am just beside myself. So thank you for tuning in. Thanks to the awesome show guests from all across the country. And especially thanks to anyone who's told a friend or shared an episode on social or started a lead balloon happy hour where they discuss episodes like it's a book club, because apparently that's a thing at an agency out on the West Coast. And I love that. But please do make sure that you're subscribed in your favorite app. Follow PodCamp Media on social, blah, blah, blah. You know the drill. Whatever. Dukakis in a tank. Let's do this. Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis in a tank is an image that has become synonymous with abject PR failure. It was a meme before meme was a term in the lexicon. And for marketers and public relations practitioners, it serves as an enduring reminder of the power that our mistakes have to burn down powerful people and institutions in one moment of lapsed judgment. So in this week at the fever pitch of an unprecedented presidential campaign, 
I am delighted to introduce somebody who has worked to orchestrate presidential optics and has spent a career studying the science of public relations. Josh King served as event production director for President Bill Clinton, orchestrating just about every iconic appearance that defined his eight-year term of office. Mr. King is an author of Off Script, an advanced man's guide to White House stagecraft, campaign spectacle, and political suicide. And perhaps most notably for our purposes, he was even a young campaign staffer for Team Dukakis 88. So Josh King, thank you for joining us on the Lead Balloon Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, Dusty. I think if I was going to go through and rank moments of political imagery from the past century, you could probably make the case that Dukakis in the Tank makes the top 10 at least. This is something that we studied in our intro to PR unit in journalism school, and it's still a cultural touchstone. President Donald Trump just brought it up last year in a speech. So as someone who knows all the key players involved in creating that moment, why is it that you think that this resonates so strongly to this day? Well, Dusty, I'm not sure is in the top 10. It really has to be in the conversation for the top one. And really, that was what made me embark on wanting to uncover a story that I was only a couple hundred miles away from when it happened on September 13, 1988, 32 years ago now. But to really get a perspective on that ride, which might have taken 10 or 15 minutes of one politician's life and still lives with him today, I think you should probably take a little bit of a step back. Mike Dukakis was the governor of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, a graduate of Swarthmore College, had all of two years of military experience under him, assigned infantry duty in Massachusetts after graduating from Swarthmore, but was a terrific administrator, governor, technocrat, leading the so-called Massachusetts miracle back to health in the Commonwealth, in disciplined fashion, got the Democratic nomination in July of 1988, the convention at the Omni in Atlanta. But he was running against a guy who had a terrific national security pedigree, Vice President George Bush, vice president for eight years. Before that, head of the CIA, envoy to China, congressman, and himself a certified war hero, having been shot down in his Avenger aircraft over Chichijima in the Pacific Ocean World War II. Yet coming out of the Democratic Convention in July, Governor Dukakis was a strong frontrunner in the race, pulling 17 points ahead of Vice President Bush. Bush was seen as sort of a second fiddle character to President Reagan, somewhat aloof and definitely an establishment candidate. And the specter of the Cold War still hung heavy on hearts and minds. Dukakis' message of domestic prosperity? Well, that was a welcome breath of fresh air. That early polling might have prompted some complacency on Dukakis' part. In August, he spent an inordinate amount of time in his home state of Massachusetts over the objection of campaign staff who insisted that he was wasting valuable campaign time. Meanwhile, the tireless Bush campaign machine chipped away at that lead with a coordinated strategy that played to Americans' worst fears. The notorious Willie Horton ads that stoked fears of violent crime and dog-whistled to racist themes Questions about Dukakis's patriotism, even though he himself had served in the army. And of course, the old chestnut that Dukakis didn't have what it would take to protect America from its foreign enemies. 
as accomplished as a domestic policy technocrat could be, had to prove his national security bona fides, which polls showed in the spring and summer of 1988 had Dukakis well behind Vice President Bush. So as summer turned to fall, as campaigns often go, they talk about dusty theme weeks where every day of the week, the candidate is going to be consistently on message talking about the theme. The theme of that week that started, I think, September 11th, that Monday, was going to be national security. It would start that Sunday, September 10th, in Boston, where all the high-ranking members of Congress who had a national security resume themselves, people like Sam Nunn, people like Les Aspen, would gather in a Boston hotel and almost anoint their nominee. Next day, he goes to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, gives a speech at Carpenter's Hall. The next day, he's in Ohio at a jet engine plant where they make engines for the F-111 fighter. And the next day, that Wednesday, he's going to give a major speech in Sterling Heights, Michigan, at the campus of General Dynamics Land Systems. But before he does that, he's going to put through its paces the product that is manufactured at Land Systems. The M1A1 Abrams main battle tank, armed with a 120-millimeter high-velocity cannon and protected by composite armor that's as tough as 60 centimeters of pure steel. A behemoth, a deadly weapon, uh, usually with a experienced crew of four, and he's going to be given a demonstration ride by the head of land systems at the time, a guy named Gordon England, who would go on to become, I think, Deputy Secretary of Defense, Secretary of the Navy, and a terrific guy himself. Now, you've made a career out of discussing the power of the visual, especially in presidential politics and optics and the role that those play. Optics were proving to be an increasingly important part of presidential campaign strategy in that era. And so looking at it from the Dukakis campaign perspective, they could have had him go to the factory and watch the tanks being made. They could have had him give a speech in front of the American flag at the tank factory. Why did they feel the need to get the visual of him riding in the tank? Well, Dusty, I have to explain what this legion of campaigners do that we know as advanced people. I was a young advanced trainee in the summer of 1987, a year before this happened, when I started working for another candidate who eventually would fail away, Paul Simon, the senator from Illinois. Then I joined Dukakis's team. And Dusty, I, I got to tell you, that it's the most fun in politics there could possibly be because they take young people like I was then, 22, 23 years old, they stick an airline ticket in your hand, give you a voucher for a rental car, and they say, go travel to these places around the country and eventually when you get to the White House around the world and make stuff happen. Learn everything you can about this place that you have to go. And in this case, it was Macomb County, Michigan, where so many electoral votes were at stake then as they are now, where Dukakis had to win back the Reagan Democrats that Ronald Reagan had taken from Jimmy Carter in 1980. And he had to prove his mettle. 
by showing his machismo doing the same kind of thing that an, a Detroit auto worker and dare I say a tank manufacturer would want their boss to do I can ride in the tank and that was the mission not assigned to me at that time but a guy who's become my friend for 32 years as well Matt Bennett same age they dispatch him to Sterling Heights they say back in Boston because they've got a grand plan and maybe they've watched a little too much patent dusty but they say <laughs> figure out how Governor Dukakis can ride in the tank we want it to look a little like Patton. We know that movie. They wanted to see a scene of that movie to leaven or illustrate or provide artwork for that three-minute news package that Chris Wallace or Sam Donaldson would put together four or five hours later for the evening news. And for that, you need a visual. You need a few seconds of the candidate doing something about which he is going to speak oh so seriously 30 minutes after the ride, talking about how we have to hold the line on the Western frontier in Europe, the NATO allies against the advancing Warsaw Pact, using this very equipment that I have now taken a test drive in and I can attest to. So it was a disconnect between this big idea, perhaps absorbed through the silver screen, and the reality of putting a small man, Governor Dukakis, inside the turret of that main battle tank. I worked for a while in the realm of political PR, certainly not at a national level, but my former boss's boss, the city clerk of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, has a saying of which he's quite fond. He likes to say, don't ever be the person in the meeting who hears a bad idea, knows it's a bad idea, but doesn't speak up to say that it's a bad idea. You mentioned your friend Matt Bennett, and from reading your article in Politico, I know that he was that person who spoke up and said, guys, this is not a great idea. Why did it still go forward? I think Matt's quote that at least he wrote to himself contemporaneously in a journal that he gave me to originally write the article that then I used to write the book was, guys, this idea sucks. (laughs) Matt was actually on site. He could see the angles, Dusty. He knew the way the visual would look. He, just like Cecil B. DeMille would could hold out his hands in the frame of a 16-millimeter celluloid and figure out what a camera would see, and he didn't like what he saw. I guess his dad was a professor of political science at Syracuse University. Matt was wiser than his years in terms of understanding geopolitics. He knew that just putting on the accoutrement of a tank commander the jumpsuit, which, by the way, didn't look like Patton's uniform. It was a ugly gray with these yellow extraction tracks. It kind of looks like pajamas, almost. It looked like a set of bad auto repair shop coveralls or pajamas, if you will. It had a kind of crappy patch on it, and it had this helmet, which serves a current tank commander or a contemporaneous tank commander back in 88 very well, It's bulbous, Dusty. It has sort of big earphones built in and a very rounded cranium to really protect a guy's skull, as we had seen happen too often in the war in Iraq when an IED would blow a piece of armor like a main battle tank, maybe not destroy it, but send it three feet off of its 
track and that would send any human being into whatever hard metal there was and could destroy a person and these helmets were made to protect them but they were not what we remembered from these sherman tanks from world war ii and the tank commanders like brad pitt played in one uh, and certainly uh george c scott did in Patton. this wouldn't look good on vin diesel it certainly didn't look good on mike dukakis it looked to me like he was wearing a costume. It looked inauthentic. Kevin Sullivan remembers seeing the footage on the evening news and chuckling. He wasn't yet a figure in politics. That would come later in 2005 when he accepted a comms role in the George W. Bush administration and eventually in 2006 would assume the title of White House Communications Director. In 1988, he was the VP of Communications for the Dallas Mavericks NBA team. But it didn't take a political wunderkind to tell you that the tank photo op was not working for Mike Dukakis. He just didn't look the part. He didn't quite pull it off. It looked a little silly. It had Mike Dukakis on that label across the helmet. It looked phony. And completely, obviously, as history has shown, backfired on him and really was was not a, a good idea. There's a history with putting things on your head as a elected official or candidate that goes back to Calvin Coolidge in 1927. In August of 1927, he was on vacation in South Dakota and was actually made an honorary chief by the Lakota Sioux. And and as part of the ceremony, he put on a headdress. And if you read about this, his advisors told him, you're going to look foolish, Mr. President, don't do this. It's going to look funny. And he said, well, isn't it good for people to laugh? So he he had been advised and he decided to do it anyway. Now, the interesting thing is he had some Native American ancestry, apparently. But most importantly, three years earlier, in 1924, he, he had signed into law the Indian Citizenship Act. And that's why they were naming him Chief Leading Eagle, an honorary chief in the Lakota Sioux. And I'm sure he felt as part of that ceremony, he wanted to honor them uh, you know, for this recognition. And so he did it. The photos of the President Coolidge event caused him some grief, but he chose not to run for another term in 1928, so we'll never know how that might have played out for him. However, the lesson had entered the zeitgeist of political convention. Don't put anything on your head. Famously, President Kennedy, on the morning of his tragic assassination in Dallas, uh, he was given a pair of rattlesnake boots and a Stetson. I think it was the Fort Worth Chamber of Commerce chief. And he sort of famously refuses to put it on. We know that you don't wear a hat. <laughs> couldn't let you leave Fort Worth without providing you with some protection against the rain. In film of this moment, and it's really a lot of fun to watch, you can see Kennedy sort of falter in the moment of indecision as he looks at the hat in his hands and out at the cheering ballroom of adoring Texans. He shuffles his feet a little bit and then leans into the mic with this almost sheepish smile. I'll put it on in the uh, White House on Monday. If you'll come up there, you'll have a chance to see it then. Uh, sadly, Monday at the White House never came. He was saying I'll do it in private because he had been taught this political lesson not to put anything on that is going to make you look funny. Uh, you can find a picture of President Kennedy before he ran for president wearing a rice hat. And maybe he learned something from that, too. But I think the, le- the, the, the lesson of the Calvin Coolidge Indian headdress photo was don't put something on that someone's going to think uh, makes you look foolish. And 
and candidate uh, Dukakis, Governor Dukakis, in 1988, disregarded that as it turns out at his own peril. So, with an established political mandate against headgear and an advance operative waving the red flag, how is it that this doomed photo op kept rolling? Well, Josh King says it was partially a crisis of momentum. What happened, Dusty, was they tried to have their cake and eat it too. There's an expression or some maxim that goes for these young people who travel the hustings like Matt and myself, that the desk always wins. The decision of headquarters is going to prevail, despite people like Matt speaking up and saying, they're not going to let Governor Dukakis take your full speed ride of the tank without a helmet on. So the answer that Boston tells him is, well, okay, we'll let him have the full speed ride, but let him come out of its hangar with the helmet off. And that's where the lenses will take a great picture of the governor and we will feed them the image that we think will look best on him. But then the governor is going to speed up, get up to its 30 or 60 mile an hour speed and wear the helmet. So in pictures that are not part of the historical record that no one ever cared about, (laughs) Governor Dukakis comes out of the hangar without wearing a helmet looks good, then puts the helmet on, and that was the money shot. And there's a driver and a Secret Service agent down below, Gordon England, Governor Dukakis on top. The National Press Corps arrayed on almost like baseball bleachers on a flatbed truck, watching this tank go through its paces. And then finally, after it had gone at full speed, the tank approaches the press corps, and does a last minute turn avoiding Sam Donaldson and Chris Wallace and everyone on the press riser bends over guffawing. What a ridiculous stunt that this was. And yet, Dusty, if you were to watch the evening news that night, they didn't call it a fail at that point. They reported it straight. Indeed, Governor Dukakis goes on to give a very serious minded national security speech. But all the way back in Washington, D.C., a guy is sitting in a temporary rented apartment his name is sig rogich and he's the las vegas advertising maven working temporarily as the head of advertising for bush quail and he's making notes and he's seeing the way sam donaldson and chris wallace are reporting it on the evening news and he's saying i think if we write a good script and make a good ad and use a narrator's voiceover over all of the military programs that governor caucus has said he has opposed the irony of him riding in this tank as long as we can put it in front of enough million eyeballs is going to put the nail in the coffin of this candidate's credentials on national defense so coming up after the break how one bad photo op came to define the entire dukakis presidential campaign Plus, how the lessons of Dukakis in a tank shaped the presidential stagecraft that Josh King orchestrated for President Bill Clinton. You'd have to pry him away from the rope line. And the moments that Kevin Sullivan crafted for President George W. Bush. That's in a minute, here on Light Balloon. This is Light Balloon, and I'm Dusty Weiss. The ill-fated photo op that put Massachusetts Governor Mike Dukakis in an M1A1 main battle tank for all the world to see, it was pretty rough. But it was 1988. Most folks then didn't even own a VCR. Had it been 2008, the moment would certainly have gone viral almost 
instantly. YouTube, Reddit, Facebook, Twitter, they would have had a field day. I mean, remember Obama, girl? But Josh King, a junior staffer for the Dukakis campaign, says they didn't know in the moment just how damaging that image would be. This moment, Dusty, could have come and gone. And we might have had a war story, as you say. We might have drunk a beer to talk about this thing that didn't quite work out. But, and this is what people don't understand, they think that everything bad about this moment happened on that day, September 13th, 1988. It wouldn't have been anything other than a maybe a, a missed opportunity or a one-day screw-up had not a television ad been made by Sig Rogich. Originally a creative for the Reagan 84 campaign, Sig Rogich was Iceland-born with a reputation as a cold-blooded strategist. He worked as director of advertising on Bush Quail 88 under none other than chief media advisor Roger Ailes. Yes, that is disgraced former president of Fox News Roger Ailes. Together, they seized on one unfortunate moment and turned it into a brand. Michael Dukakis has opposed virtually every defense system we developed. He opposed new The narrator sounds so grave as the sound effects of the grinding gears of a tank play under his voice. And then these chirons of weapon system after weapon system that this technocratic governor of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts was said to have opposed. America can't afford that risk. And then take out your checkbook and write a check to the television network broadcasting the Los Angeles Dodgers and Oakland A's, I believe, in the World Series and put this ad in front of the millions upon millions of swing voters in states like Michigan and others that eventually Bush prevailed in. It was, I think, one of the highest rated games of the World Series where the ad played, and that is what we remember as Dukakis in the Tank. It wasn't the moment itself. It was ad men, Sig Rogich, putting it together and going well beyond that one-day evening news audience, which wasn't even that negative, and turning it into the negative by making Dukakis seem someone he wasn't. And this is certainly something that not only changed the course of American history by helping elect George H.W. Bush as president, but changed the course of American political history by really changing the tone and tenor of political advertising going forward. In fact, I've read that uh, Lee Atwater, the campaign manager for George H.W. Bush, who later became ill, apologized on his deathbed to Governor Dukakis for the savagery of that and some of the other political advertising that took place there. When you look at this now from the perspective of being in the middle of Donald Trump's second campaign for president, is that a pivotal moment in history that paved the way to the type of politics that we see now? Can you trace what we have now back to some of the lessons that were learned in the Bush-Dukakis campaign? Well, I certainly thought so. Atwater was a genius, Sig Rogich a genius, James Baker, who ran that campaign, a terrific manager. And if you think of the campaigns prior, Ronald Reagan, Morning in America against Walter Mondale, 1980, the overhang of the Iran hostage crisis, the economic malaise under President Carter. But 88 is a pretty pivotal moment in terms of 
ad making, media buying, targeting, and coverage by the network news using pretty big still, but still much more mobile videotape units rather than film units on your shoulder. They could get uploaded and bounced off of a satellite from wherever you were, in this case, Sterling Heights, Michigan, back to the transmission facilities and editing bays in New York for the evening news. Kevin Sullivan, who served under the second President Bush as White House comms director, cautions that the Bush 88 team didn't invent dirty campaigning. That tenor existed long before. You know, there's lots of material out there in this. President Nixon at one time famously claimed he learned some dirty tricks from the Kennedy campaign in 1960. You can go back to the founders of our country and some of the things that they said about each other on the campaign trail. So I I don't think the Dukakis thing was the change. You know, politics is a rough racket. There's no question about it. And I, you know, I think it definitely predated the Dukakis thing. But Josh King still sees Dukakis in a tank as a historical signpost that's still relevant today. And what I thought about as I worked in that first campaign, Dusty, and then came back and worked for Governor Clinton in 92 and President Clinton's reelect in 96, saw lots of friends working for Vice President Al Gore's campaign in 2000, John Kerry's in 2004, Barack Obama's in 2008 and 2012, the ultimate matchup between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump You'd think, Dusty, that the old phrase, don't let history repeat itself, would prevail in the way that people manage presidential campaigns. And yet, as I looked hard at each of those quadrennial matchups, I found one that I thought, in various ways, fits the Dukakis and the tank mold of of a visual screw-up, in itself a very small matter, but when magnified either by the media or negative advertising by the other side had a drastically upscaled negative effect on the candidate who committed the error. I thought in 1992 it was Bush in the supermarket scanner, which we could have a long discussion on too, which was an unfortunate view of his view about the working class. Read my lips. No In 1996, it was Bob Dole falling off of a stage in Chico, California, again, sort of adding to this impression that he was maybe too old to be president, running against a much younger man and Bill Clinton. In 2000, Al Gore had promoted himself as an environmentalist. This is really not a political issue so much as a moral issue. And yet got caught, not himself, but his campaign got caught actually orchestrating a large release of millions of gallons of water on the Connecticut River on the border between Vermont and New Hampshire so that Al Gore's bucolic canoe ride would have less risk of running aground as he came down in camera's view. 2004, there was so much going on. President Bush and mission accomplished on the deck of the Abraham Lincoln. Our coalition will stay until our work is done. Howard Dean and Dean scream. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House! John Kerry, who went windsurfing during the Republican convention, and that was turned into a very Dukakis-like devastating ad, whichever way the wind blows, set to waltz music. In which direction would John Kerry lead? That windsurfing ad sticks out in Kevin Sullivan's memory, too. He was trying to look athletic, young, and vigorous. 
And instead, he came across looking elitist, I think. I don't know what percentage of the American people have ever windsurfed, but it's not a big number. They used that windsurfing footage where they, they talked about how he changes directions on things. Five times to do so. John Kerry, whichever way the wind blows. And then Mitt Romney, trying to beat President Obama 2012, goes to the villages in Florida, which is a place where so many votes are at stake even today, and sings America the Beautiful in front of the crowd. Oh, beautiful for spacious skies. Then that is then turned around by the Obama campaign into a sort of discordant singing uh, of the song by Governor Romney, overlaid with pictures of boarded up factories and empty offices. Then it, it sort of came to this battle between Mr. Trump and Secretary Clinton and Trump coming down the escalator, being very much himself. I mean, the one thing you could say about 2016 is Trump was the character Trump wanted to demonstrate. And so many of these examples leading up to 2016 that I've talked about going all the way back to Governor Dukakis in 1988 were examples of people who were actors trying to take direction from their headquarters and from their advanced people, but ultimately not being comfortable in their skin, playing a role that they weren't perfectly at home playing. That notion of being yourself, of playing to your strengths in politics is is certainly one that I've always strived to drive home uh, during my tenure as a public relations practitioner in politics. But in that same vein, you know, you had a, a front row seat for history as a junior member of the Dukakis campaign in 88, and then you went on to work for Bill Clinton when he was president as his events director, someone who was pretty much always himself, for better or worse, but he was always honest about that. Was that direction that he was taking from you and the rest of his staff, or was that also something that was just inherent in his personality? Totally inherent in his personality. <laughs> the, the things that we would do was maybe take him to places that allowed his character to shine through in a more colorful way. But as a, a human being, as such an interesting cat, young man growing up in Arkansas, his birth father dies when he's very young. The stories about his father's alcoholism are well known. You know, his mother trying her best to put Bill and his brother give them education, and Bill working his way up as a showman, as a saxophonist in high school, going to Georgetown, then getting a Rhodes Scholarship at Oxford, and coming back, Yale Law School, and working his way up as a teller of great stories on the campaign trail in Arkansas through his many campaigns, I think three or four successful gubernatorial campaigns. And so he is a master speaker and a storyteller and had the intellectual wherewithal and heft to back up what he was saying without a script, without notes. And so the things that we might have been able to do through scheduling and advance work would be to take him to interesting places, put him against backdrops that evoked some of his policy views and made the images of those speeches or moments all the more powerful because of where he was. But very seldom was he not doing things that were innate to him. You know, he had that expression so many times kind of mocked, I feel your pain. But that guy had grown up with a lot of pain in Arkansas. He really knew the plight that people were enduring 
and wherever he happened to be around the country or around the world, he could empathize with that. And it was only a matter of finding those places around the country, around the world that gave him the opportunity to meet with people, talk with people, shake their hands until all hours. That was all that we had to do. We basically had to wind him up and send him out. I've had the opportunity to meet him on several occasions. And and our current president right now previously branded one of his foes as low energy. Bill Clinton was a guy and is a guy that is never low energy. He is always going 110%. And so can I just say, uh, I could stand to hear a little more of your Bill Clinton impression. That that was pretty good. Uh, you've got that one nailed down. I don't have that nailed down. I have a couple phrases that we all heard so many times that it was sort of ingrained, but there's a lot of people who do a better Bill Clinton than I do. <laughs> Josh King may have served in a Democratic administration, Kevin Sullivan in a Republican White House, but Kevin says PR and marketing pros of all political stripes can take lessons from the disaster of Dukakis in a tank. We were very mindful of what the lead image would be and, you know, carefully staged events to capture an image that, again, would reinforce and elevate your message of the day. Taking those lessons from the Dukakis campaign, were there then moments when you saw a photo op coming and had to sort of run into the line of fire and say, no, 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 this is a bad idea. Let's let's not do this, please. All the time. And sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. I'll tell you a couple of funny ones. Like I remember one time we were doing, I think it was a Medicare drug benefit, uh, what would be called an OTR, off the record, where the president, without much notice, would show up at a drugstore. I think it was a CVS in Washington, D.C., and would go in and would do a photo and there were rules because it was a drugstore. The president could not go behind the counter, which is where the controlled substances are. <laughs> and of course you look around at CVS and, and you're trying to pick a place to stage a photo. And you know, there's materials in there, products for senior citizens. And there's a magazine rack that has God knows what on it. And all, all kinds of things. Let your imagination run wild as to what you see in a, in a drugstore. And so we had picked the most harmless backdrop we could. And yet when President Bush arrived on the scene, even though we had sort of gamed this out, he wanted to be with the people who worked there. And he went right behind the counter, even though that was not what the plan was and what was technically even against the rules, because he wanted to pose with the women working behind the counter, talking to seniors about their their drugs. And they loved it, and he loved it, and it made for a great photo. And in that moment, his instincts were much better than ours. And it really didn't matter that he had technically broken the rule about going behind the counter where the controlled substances were. It mattered that he was with people. And, you know, images of people are always more interesting than images of things. So his political instincts, which were, were typically very good, uh, you know, pay, paid off in a way, in a big way on that day. You know, and there were other days we... He liked, again, mixing with the people. I remember one, we were at a, uh, it was called Wright Manufacturing in Maryland. This was in early 2008. This company manufactures equipment for landscaping. And there was a, a stand-up lawnmower that was a new product that they were promoting. And we didn't necessarily want him to get on this thing and ride it around the, the factory floor because, again, something could go wrong. Well, he thought it was cool, but he what he really wanted to do was honor the men and women that had worked on the designing and building of this new stand-up lawnmower to have the American president, as he used to say, not old George W., 
but the American president is actually going to test drive this baby. And so he just jumped on it and started driving it around. And again, it ended up being a good thing. So, you know, you, you hope the candidate or the, in this particular case, the president listens to his advisors. But sometimes it works out better when he go, relies on his, his own uh, instincts for what's going to mean most in, in those kind of kind of moments. Looking back with 32 years of historical perspective, maybe we've had the takeaway message wrong this whole time. It's not about hats and helmets. Because say what you want about George W. Bush or Bill Clinton as presidents, but you'll never hear anyone say that they weren't comfortable in their own skin. And so maybe the lesson here for political candidates, hell, for brands and corporations too, is a lesson in authenticity. Be honest about who you are, play to your strengths, improve in the places where you're weak, and don't try to be something that you're not. Mr. King, I proudly call Wisconsin my home, and in 2016, Wisconsin is one of the states where Donald Trump upset Hillary Clinton, ultimately handing him the election. During her campaign, Hillary Clinton didn't visit Wisconsin once, the first presidential candidate in decades to have issued a visit to the Badger State. And so for four years here, the political conversation has rather tediously centered on, if only Hillary Clinton had visited Wisconsin, she'd have won. I think that's oversimplifying a little bit in a chicken and egg sort of way. I think that her campaign was also want to glossing over meat and potatoes, Midwestern issues in states and that skipping the customary cheese curd sampling was symptomatic of that, not the other way around. All of which is a really long winded way of asking you, do you really think that the tank photo op cost Dukakis the election? Or was there a bigger problem of which it was just the perfect shining visualization? Oh, I think there were many problems with that campaign, Dusty. But let me touch on something that you hit on, because in your last question, you talked about how President Trump dubbed one of his opponents low energy, how Governor Clinton, people talk about in the places like Milwaukee and Racine and other places, they say Secretary Clinton didn't visit here in 2016. I mean. Those are connected in a couple ways. One is Bill Clinton, President Clinton, as I implied, you'd have to pry him away from the rope line. You'd have to, you'd have to force him to get away from people back into the limousine and over to whatever hotel we were staying at. And even then, you really couldn't get him back in his room. He would find the mayor or the congressperson or the governor and it'd say, where's the, where's the best place for dinner? And after all this campaigning, as late as it was, they would spend the night talking and gabbing until he would have the last word and, and, and given the end of his sermon on a particular night. And only then, Dusty, would he go back to the hotel room to rest and then wind up and start again the next morning. And I found it interesting in both candidates in 2016 how... They thought they were using to best affect their campaign aircraft to get from wherever they were around the continental United States that day back to either Westchester, New York, or Trump Tower in Manhattan and sleep in their own bed. And so I've thought a lot about what people talk about, didn't visit Wisconsin, didn't visit Pennsylvania enough, didn't visit Michigan enough, because... You know, it's only a matter of telling your pilot to descend over Green Bay or, or over Milwaukee or over Racine, find a decent hotel, 
do a little bit of media, meet with some local politicians and spend the night and begin your day the next day from really the dead center of the nation to wherever you're going. And maybe you think you have that state locked up or maybe you think it's out of reach, but I don't think anything's ever lost when you go meet the folks in a different part of the country. You're, I'm looking at you, you have that Green Bay Packers pennant right behind you. I remember one of the trips to Wisconsin well, Bill Clinton was in the White House, stopping to visit a Packers practice, tossing the, the football with Brett Favre, and having a great old time. And these moments, you know, have a lot of mileage when they then get picked up in the Journal Sentinel the next day. Is there a way that you can synthesize that in a candidate, or do they just have to have that genuine affection for people and being out and meeting them? I, I mean, you have to you have to realize, you have to love it, Dusty. You have to think that this is a, a once-in-a-lifetime privilege to be your party's nominee, to have enough money to afford a 757 or 737 or 727 lease for 90 days, that you can take anywhere you want, mostly in the continental United States, but in other years, you know, a trip to Europe or a trip to Mexico or a trip to Canada to show your international bona fides. And you have to say, look, you got to leave it all out on the field. And to get back to your own pillow in your own bedroom, you know, I, I don't think, at least in a normal year, what a nominee should be doing in their final 100 days before an election day. You really should be figuring out how many stops you can make, how many really obscure places you can be. Some of my fondest moments of a campaign trailer in the smallest towns, Fancy Farm Kentucky at the Fancy Farm Barbecue. And yet the message always got out because the lenses were always there. People who hear the name Dukakis, to this day, they bring it up. It comes up at parties. They bring up the tank. I imagine that you've been asked about it, given your history, 10,000 times. Are you tired of it yet? Well, I, I, I love the story itself, and I I wrote the heck out of it. I, I turned that six or eight page story that ran in Political Magazine into, you know, a 500 page book, 100 pages of which were dedicated to every angle of that screw up. I always thought it was an amazing event to look at and analyze. Everyone did bring it up, Dusty, as you've said. No one really sort of got to the core of all the elements that made it as bad as it was until I sort of tried to unpack it. And every four years, you know, it comes around and people say, well, you know, President Trump's walk across Lafayette Square to hold an upside down Bible in front of St. John's Church was the Dukakis in the tank of 2020. And then then he takes a ride in his limo outside of Walter Reed Hospital. And they call that the Dukakis in the tank ride of 2020. And we're going to see people in 2022 and 2024 have analogies to Dukakis in the tank. It's it's really the event that keeps on giving. Uh, speaking of your book, it was written in sort of the lead up to and then culmination of the 2016 presidential election. We're recording this a few weeks before the 2020 election, so we don't know yet the outcome. This episode will be released during the week of the election. And let's be honest, there's no guarantee that we will know the results at that time either. But regardless, a lot has changed over the last four years, and there have seemingly been new lessons to learn about optics every week. So what's in the works for you? Another book? A podcast? What have you got cooking? Well, I, I, I've i long since moved on from politics, Dusty. I, I work in the private sector now, continuing to do public relations type work. I love watching this stuff. I have my own podcast. It's called Inside the Ice House. Occasionally, 
touches on matters of history and politics, but mostly focuses on business. I just watch now as a armchair quarterback, knowing how a lot of the sausage does get made, curious and interested how this year, 2020, has been so distinct from prior years with the coronavirus pandemic, how it has prevented so many people from doing the basic political work of door-to-door door knocking, canvassing, rally building, rally holding. Hasn't held President Trump back. He's certainly been criticized for it. Made Vice President Biden spend a lot of his time close to his home in Delaware and then beginning to do events sort of in a, in concentric circles around his home in the Wilmington area, and finally now getting out around the country, but speaking to very small groups, and yet his message is getting through as well. So I do think the book could be rewritten after this campaign, no matter the outcome. I think it's it'll tell us a lot, but it won't tell us a lot really until until the final votes are counted. Will the excitement and passion that is clearly evident in President Trump's rallies translate into support at the the ballot box? Will Joe Biden's message, which seems to be getting out, but getting out to smaller numbers of people, still resonate just because the lenses are there and the microphones are there to record him? We won't really know until we know the outcome of Election Day, which was the same as it was 32 years ago in 1988. I was a young man flying all over the country with a couple days notice to put on yet another political show in a different part of the country. My last visit was to I think Portland, Oregon, did a big rally at Portland State University, and it did feel in those closing two weeks that Governor Dukakis had, even as it had been through so many things, it had been through the tank episode, he'd been through the Willie Horton attacks, he'd been called mentally ill, he'd been questioned whether he had full allegiance to the country and didn't like to recite the Pledge of Allegiance. He'd been through the three presidential debates with Vice President Bush uh, when Bernard Shaw of CNN would ask, Governor, if your wife Kitty were raped and murdered, would you seek the death penalty for her perpetrator? All of these things, you would think he'd be dead and buried, and yet there we were in Portland, Oregon, with a week or two left, And we saw this guy actually have the kind of fire in his belly that we hadn't seen him have all year. And we thought, hey, maybe maybe he can pull a rabbit out of the hat. And I think we flew back to Boston from a last minute midnight rally at Detroit Metropolitan Airport, got in the governor's campaign plane, landed at Logan Airport in the wee hours of Election Day. Was probably wearing the same clothes I'd worn for three days. I managed to make it to the polling place, cast my ballot, and then you know went to sleep until the, the votes came in. And the votes came in, certainly signaling defeat for Governor Dukakis. But we were sort of kind of hopeful, even in those last dying days, that miracles could happen. And so who knows where things are going to turn out this year? Yeah, certainly. Well, it has been delightful to talk about a presidential campaign that doesn't have seemingly immediate and apocalyptic ramifications at every turn. Your expertise and your knack for storytelling are very much appreciated. Josh King, former event production director for President Bill Clinton, author of Off Script. Thanks for joining us on the Lead Balloon podcast. Thanks so much, Dusty. For his part, Kevin Sullivan is also a political Monday morning quarterback these days. He has his own consulting agency in Dallas, and he's an advisor to the George W. Bush Presidential Center. And he's actually the one who recommended that I reach out to Josh King, who's an old friend of his. That's right. 
two people with different political ideologies who don't feel the need to brand their opponents as enemies of the people. It's a kind of throwback of sorts. And your point about bipartisanship, I would commend to any of your listeners who are in the communications business, or really any business, to read Josh's book, Off Script, which has all kinds of lessons learned. This is a really bright, talented guy with a ton of experience. You know, I, I've learned a lot from Josh. Occasionally, I was the guest Republican counterpart to him on the Polyoptics podcast and show on Sirius XM, and we had a lot of fun doing that. And uh, there's no reason why uh, we can't work together across the aisle as communicators in terms of helping each other and learning from each other. And certainly as elected officials, uh, we need to work uh, together uh, to get things done for the betterment of the of the people. And this is a small example of that where Josh and I have been friends for several years now. And uh, I knew he would be a, a, a terrific guest for your for your audience because he has so much experience. He's a great storyteller and and, and a, a talented, capable, good person. I have to say that uh, in the course of our conversation, uh, at one point, I got to hear Josh's Bill Clinton impression. So <laughs> yeah. in the spirit of fair play, if you have a George W. Bush impression, I would love to hear it right now. I, I'm sorry to disappoint you. I won't do it. I, I don't have, I'm not an impressionist. Uh, so I, I don't want to, to embarrass myself or disappoint your audience. That's fair. That's fair. It's, it's been fascinating sort of revisiting this, and of course the timing couldn't be better. I think in a lot of ways it harkens back to a more innocent time in political communications. You wonder if Joe Biden's campaign manager will ever be able to have a friendly conversation with Donald Trump's campaign manager. Yeah, who knows? You know, if, if not, it, that's uh, that's too bad because there's, you know, they're going to have to, uh, you know, the one thing, whether it's whether it's this year or in four years, you know, we went through a transition from a Republican president to President-elect Obama's team. And the transition process, which President Bush told us way in advance, we're going to do this the right way. There's the stakes are very high. We're at war. By the time we got there, we had the financial crisis. And so we needed to do everything we could to help President Obama's team be successful. It was a very rewarding process to be a part of and a great example of rising above party to do what's right for the people. President Bush you know, made it very clear, not just to the senior staff at the White House, but to the cabinet, uh, led by Josh Bolton, the chief of staff, that we were going to do the transition in the most robust, helpful way possible. And I think that should be the spirit where people work together no matter what party. I think... After the year that we've had, that's a sentiment to which we can all raise a glass. And that is going to wrap up this season of Lead Balloon. It has been a heck of a ride, folks. And the trophy from Adweek for Marketing Podcast of the Year, well, it's awesome. But it's also going to open up doors for me to bring you even bigger guests, even wilder stories and maybe even a little bit of hell-raising in Season 2. Because the irons that I have in the fire right now, ho, 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 they're hot. It's going to be fun. Season 2 of Lead Balloon is going to land in January 2021. You'll probably hear a short update from me before then because I have some other awesome news about our growing company as well that I'm just going to have to share on this feed. What company is that? Well, it's PodCamp Media, where we provide branded podcast production solutions for businesses. Check out our website, podcampmedia.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, where I will be leaking exciting details about Season 2. Please subscribe to our show on your favorite app, and if you've got a great story to share, hit me up. 
Till the next time, folks. Thanks for listening. I'm Dusty Weiss.